The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Our reading for today is from the book of Luke, chapter 13, 31 through 35. Please follow along with your Bibles, your phone. If not, it's on the screen. At the time, some of the Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and uh, Pastor Josh will unpack this for us. Oh, glorious. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we come before you today uh, thankful that we get to be a part of your story here on earth. Lord, uh, we pray that as we continue to encounter you through uh, the different ways of your word, of prayer, of worship, of this gathering, Lord, that you speak, Lord, that we're drawn closer to you, uh, and in drawing closer to you, also drawing closer to our neighbors, our community, and this world. Lord God, we say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. So we are starting a series, which I'm going to be honest with you, is not one that I would have personally picked. So the Axe Church Leander is part of a larger Axe Church network. So that's Axe Church Lakeway and Lakeline and Kyle. And once or twice a year, we like to get together and do a joint sermon series, and we do a pastor swap. And so to do that, all of us have to be on the same series, going through the same types of messages. And we are in the season of Lent, which is typically a time of reflection, of repentance, as we work our way to Easter. And the other pastors were like, we should focus on times when Jesus lamented. And I'm like, that is totally not me. I'm the happy guy, right? I'm the guy who likes to be big smiles. I want to be Barnabas. I want to be the encourager to people. And so the idea of doing a whole series based around times when Jesus was upset is not natural to me. And yet, it's part of who Jesus was. It's part of what Jesus' ministry happened here on earth. And so it's good that we're a part of a larger network, of a larger body of Christ that can help speak into what Jesus is doing locally, the message, so we get a full picture of that. So we're going to be going through four weeks where each of the pastors are going to rotate through the churches, focusing on different areas where Jesus lamented or literally wept. So we're going to be looking at things like death, And what happened when Jesus experienced death? Today we're going to be looking at injustice. But the premise of this whole series is that Jesus mourns with us. There is brokenness in the world. And all of us can see this pretty readily. Whether it's a disease that's sweeping through the world. Whether it's how nations treat each other. Whether it's how families treat each other. There is brokenness. There is hurt. We have been betrayed and we have been betrayers. And Jesus lamented that. He mourned that. And one of the ways he mourned was over injustice. And when I was first given this reading to do injustice, at first glance, I'm like, why did you give me this? This doesn't make sense. But as I began to unpack it, I'm like, oh, I I, I see what's happening here. See, the reason why we have this gospel for injustice is because Jesus is referencing the prophets. 
and the prophets were all about injustice, right? It goes like this. At that time, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place, go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Jesus, the Messiah, had come to Jerusalem, the centerpiece of the Old Testament where God would speak to his people, and Jesus came to speak to his people. But John tells us that he came to that which was his own, and his own didn't want to receive him. In fact, the king at that time decided he wanted to kill him. The Pharisees aren't actually being nice to Jesus. They're trying to keep him out. They're trying to pressure him. They're trying to make him be afraid to go to the capital. And what is Jesus' response? He says, you go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and the third day I will reach my goal. He's talking about going to the cross. He's talking about resurrection. He's talking about foreshadowing what his mission on earth is. Then he goes on and he explains. He says, in any case, I must press on today, tomorrow, and the next day. Again, referring to the cross, referring to the resurrection. For surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. He references the prophets. And when you read through the prophets, what you see is they are calling out injustice and unrighteousness in God's community. And God is all about righteousness and justice. He goes on and he says, look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, in the Old Testament, God had set up a system. He'd set up a community that people would connect to God and people would take care of each other. And they wouldn't take care of each other because it had some benefit to them. It wasn't like, if you're a good neighbor, I'll be a good neighbor to you. If you do everything right, if you have some benefit to me, then I will love you and I will care for you. Because what happens then is the people who are below you, who don't have the same resources or the same access to opportunity, you don't have to care for because they don't benefit you. And yet in the Old Testament, God set up a system to say, that's not just, that's not righteousness. You see this in Amos. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, when, uh, for four, I will not relent. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods of the ancestors that followed, I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortress of Jerusalem. First he says, you betrayed God. You broke right relationship. You broke righteousness with God. You don't have a right relationship with him because you're trusting in these idols. Right? But then he goes on. And this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. And they lie beside every altar of garments taken in a pledge in the house of their God, not the God, whatever God they have. They drink wine taken as fines. The Old Testament prophets went to the people of God. And they called out the hypocrisy of, you've betrayed your relationship with God. 
and you have betrayed your relationship with everyone else. You're playing by the world's rules, not God's rules. You're playing in the world system, not God's system. And they didn't want to hear that any more than they wanted to hear Jesus. And so prophet after prophet after prophet would go to Jerusalem, would go to the people of God, and prophet after prophet after prophet would be murdered. They'd be exiled. Because the people didn't want to hear that there was something wrong. They wanted to continue on in that brokenness. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he sees it happening again. He sees them not hearing that God wants justice, that God wants righteousness, he wants right relationships, and we don't want to hear it. And Jesus laments. And yet, he doesn't just say, well, it's broken, it's unfixable, and leave us to our own devices. He had a plan. A plan for righteousness and justice that we see in the Old Testament and then comes to its fullness in the New Testament. A couple years ago, we went through a series called How to Read Your Bible. And we used the Bible Project, which makes these fantastic videos talking about different genres in Scripture. And one of the videos we looked at specifically talked about the prophets and righteousness and justice. And we're going to watch that video again because for me, every time I see it, I'm reminded, oh, that's what God is trying to do. That's the type of community that he's after. That's the heart of who Jesus is and who we are called to be in the face of injustice and unrighteousness. So we're going to watch that video and then we're going to unpack what that looks like today. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that. But we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use. But what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. 
Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free. But he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Every time I watch that video, I'm convicted, right? Because whether by my action or inaction, I'm really good at pushing other people down. I'm really good at trying to get my status higher 
comparatively to everyone else's, right? And left to my own devices, I'm not righteous before God. I have all kinds of idols. And I am unjust or unjust to my neighbor, to my community. It's broken. Jesus came to a broken world, but he had a plan. And his plan went like this. He goes, yeah, you, you will never be able to work your way to heaven, so heaven will come to you. You will never be able to make a right relationship with God, so I'll make it for you. And I will wrap you in me. The New Testament over and over and over again talks about how we are clothed with Christ. And because we have that white righteousness around us, God looks down and he sees and he's like, you're in right relationship with me. You are a child of mine. You are beautiful in my image. We are reconciled. But it doesn't end there. He says, and now that you have been reconciled, now that you are righteous, you're going to pay that righteousness forward. You are going to start to restore right relationship with everyone else. You are going to do righteousness and justice in this world to a world that is fractured and that is broken and that has forgotten how to love one another, has forgotten how to advocate for one another. And thus became the early church. We're going to do a little bit of history lesson. And so I'm going to ask you guys to follow along with me, but I promise this history lesson is going to get relevant really, really quick. All right? So the early church grew up in the Roman Empire. And at that time, Rome was everything. They had conquered what was then known as the known world. And it was a culture that was not in harmony with Christianity by any means. Some of the marks of the Roman Empire. First and foremost, they were nationally dominant. They were not the first nationally dominant empire. There were the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Persians and the Egyptians. But they were the current dominant national force. And everyone knew you were either Roman or you were nothing. If you want to talk about different layers, right, like the video showed, Rome was super high and everyone else, well, you weren't. And so the dominance of Rome was massive at that time. Beyond that, there was a huge priority on citizenship. Now, this wasn't good or bad. In fact, Paul, the apostle, was a Roman citizen, and he was able to use those tools to preach the message of who Jesus was in places he wouldn't have otherwise because of this citizenship. But again, it was one of those things, not only was it important to be Roman, but you were a citizen or you did not have rights. You did not have access to the same types of protections and benefits that the rest of the culture did. Winning the argument was crucial. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they would sit with philosophers of the day and they would argue and they would debate. And what was most important was getting a shot in. Was making sure that someone else knew they were right and you were wrong. By the way, you were right and they were wrong. That was crucial in this culture. Beyond that, and this is sad... But children were considered burdens. Infanticide was regular, was common. If you had a child and you were hoping for a male and you got a female and you didn't want her, then you didn't keep her. If you had a child who had some type of deformity or infirmity, children were considered a burden. And it was the choice of the adult to whether accept that burden or to say, you know what, it's, it's not really a good time. 
And last but not least, there was an emphasis on personal satisfaction when it came to sex. And so you would get married, but you were almost considered stupid if you stayed within your marriage when it came to that issue. Why would you stay with one person when so many more can give you satisfaction? This was the culture of the Roman Empire. And then comes this backwoods, poor, impoverished religion called Christianity. And within 400 years, Christianity would have overtaken, would have spread throughout the Roman Empire, so much so that the Roman Empire just said, I guess we're Christian now, because everyone else is. There's a book called The Destroyer of Gods. For those of you who are historians, highly recommend this. It's written by Larry Hurtado. And he talks about the early Christian distinctives in the early Roman Empire. So what was distinct among the church that drove our growth? And the things that you wouldn't think of, yeah, if you're going to start a political movement, a religious movement, they aren't the things that we would typically in today's day and age or in the Roman day and age would make sense. He said they had a commitment to racial and cultural diversity and equity. While the Roman Empire said it's most important to be Roman, it's most important to be a part of this nation, the Christians were going out and saying, no, God loves everyone. It doesn't matter what skin color you have, what language you speak, what country you were born in, God is for you and we are for you. Beyond that, they sought the good of the poor and the sick. Again, within any culture, the poor can't do anything for you. But within the Christian culture, they said, no, we're going to care for you. We're going to advocate for you. As the scripture said in the video, we are going to be a voice for the voiceless. We're going to take care of the sick. We are going to be committed to civility, peacemaking, and reconciliation. Christians were literally being put on crosses. We are being fed to the lions and coliseums. We were being made sport of. And the Christians didn't say, you know what, we need to get more powerful. We need to get militias. We need to protect ourselves. We need to protect our families. They loved. They modeled Christ in turning the other cheek. They specialized in civility and peacemaking and reconciliation. They celebrated and protected life in all of its forms. They stood and said, no, we are advocating for a God of life. And so we will protect any life, child, elderly, anyone in between, because our God is a God of life who created these people in his image. And they advocated for sexual purity in marriage. They said, no, it's not all about your personal satisfaction in the moment. God designed you to unite and to bring out the best in someone else, and they're going to bring out the best in you, and that is sacred, and that is beautiful. Tim Keller was talking about these, and he says, you know, the first two kind of represent the emphasis of one political party. The second two represent an emphasis of another political party, and the middle one, none of us are doing, right? And so all of us can look at this list, and quite frankly, all of us screw each and every one of these things up. Right? And yet when you look at the early Christian church, what you see is that these are the distinctives. These are the marks that set us apart from everybody else. And what you see in Scripture is that these marks are deeply tied to who our Jesus is. Right? This first one. 
a commitment to racial and cultural diversity. Jesus says this in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know my sheep, I lay down my life for my sheep. He's speaking to the Jewish Israelites. He's saying, guys, I'm your shepherd. The father loves you and I'm gonna die for you. But then what does he say? He says, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock One shepherd, the Great Commission, go therefore into all nations, making them disciples. Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, and I will give you the Holy Spirit, and you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, local, Judea, regional, Samaria, national, and to the ends of the earth. The early Christian church was marked by saying we are full. In fact, we are less than when we are not all. And we modeled that. And it was counter-cultural to everything that the world was screaming at us. It goes on. A commitment to seek the good of the poor and of the sick. This comes from Acts chapter 2. All believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The early Christian church did not look for the powerful to add to their number. How do we become stronger? How do we have more influence? They went to the vulnerable. They went to the poor. And they said, it's not Mine versus yours, but it's ours. And because you are created in God's image, we want to share and we want to advocate and we want to love you as we love ourselves. And they did this with the sick as well. And I just want to pause here and just get real practical. Right now, there is a virus that is spreading across the United States and the world. And all of us are uneasy. And it can be our initial sinful reaction to quarantine others or quarantine ourselves and say, well, you know, it's too bad for them, but I've got to protect me and mine. That's what the Romans did. 2,000 years ago, they had a lot less understanding of how disease spread, right? They knew someone would get sick and then they could follow and this person gets sick and this person gets sick. And so the easiest way to stop the sickness was to isolate them was to either quarantine them in their house or keep them out of the city or the country. And yet the Christians, hearing Jesus' words in Matthew 25, and I was sick and you took care of me. And they said, but Jesus, we never saw you sick. And he says, whenever you did for the least of these, you did for me. They believed that. And I am not saying don't wash your hands. Bathe and sanitize all you want. But to be driven by fear and thus separate ourselves because someone else is sick or someone else isn't where we are, isn't of Jesus. It's not where we are called to. We sang that song, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. John chapter 4 from a couple weeks ago, perfect love drives out all fear. We are playing with house chips, guys. We're going to heaven. Our names are sealed. So let's love sacrificially because we're not playing by the same fear that the world is. 
A commitment to live out civility, peacemaking, and reconciliation. Matthew chapter 5, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm going to tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You see, he causes the sun to rise and the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's a divided world we live in right now. And it's getting louder. And that divide is getting wider and more hostile. And we can stand up and say, it's my right to attack back. It's my right to ridicule or to mock. And Jesus comes and says, guys, that's not my way. That's not the mark of the church. That's not the mark of faith. That's not the mark. God could have done that to us, right? I'm right, you're wrong. You're disqualified. That's not what he does. He comes down and he says, yeah, I'm right, but I'm going to wrap you in my righteousness. I'm going to wrap you in my love. I'm going to hold on to you even when you are beating me, even when you are acting like a five-year-old, having a temper tantrum because I'm going to love you and I'm going to hold you and you will not have to be by yourself. A commitment to be civil, a commitment to be reconcilers, to be peacemakers in a time where it's not popular and it's very countercultural. A commitment to life in all of its forms. It comes from Psalm 139. For you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. And all my days were ordained for me, written in your book before one of them came to breathe. How precious are your thoughts of me. God, how vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. We have a God of life who knit us together in the womb, post-womb, until our last breath. And he is advocating for life and he is asking us as a church to be advocates for life. It's why we have acts of love. So any mom in Leander if they get pregnant and they realize it's going to be hard and there's going to be difficult choices where we stand with them and say, we know it's hard, but we are with you and we are for you. Not just when you're pregnant, but when you have the baby, we are for your family. We are advocates for your family. You're not alone. We are going to love you as we love ourselves, as we love our own grandchildren, as we love our own children. We are going to tie our success to your success because God loves you and we love you and we have a God of life. And finally, a commitment to sexual purity between husband and wife. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish, holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Because he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. God says, you want to know how to really bring out the best in yourself? Ironically, it's in bringing out the best in your spouse. 
It's not about your own personal satisfaction, but it's about advocating and loving and saying, God, I want the best for this person that you have united me with, that you're bringing me together with, and so I'm going to fight for them, and I'm going to love them, and I'm going to bring out the best in them. And what's beautiful is that in that relationship with God, they do the same for you. And we become closer to each other, and we become closer to God and that image that he made us to be. The early Christian church was countercultural. We didn't win by having more swords or having more money or having more political or regional power. We won by being culturally different, by being marked by the fragrance of Jesus. And from that, the church grew. From that, something different happened, and people started asking the question, why? Why are you putting yourself at risk by taking care of the sick person? Why are you advocating for someone who didn't come from your country or doesn't speak the same language? Why are you advocating for this baby who you have no relationship with that is only going to drain your resources? Why aren't you after personal satisfaction, but instead love and care for each other in marriage? And this is straight from Jesus, guys. A new command I give you, he says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Why? Because by this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. You see, the early church was marked by love. This radical, countercultural love that wrapped its arms around everyone, that refused to fight back, that refused to get into the muck and the mud and the throwing of axes at one another and said, no, we are following Jesus. And in doing that, they created a platform where people started to ask, Why? And we were able to say, well, you see, when I was unrighteous, when I was clothed in that red, in that rasha, in that wickedness, Jesus came down and he said, I love you. And I'll die for you. And he wrapped me in his righteousness. And he wrapped me in a right relationship with God. And he said, now I want a family and people in right relationship with God. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what you've done to me. God wants everyone to be in right relationship with him and with each other. That's what righteousness looks like. That's what justice looks like. After the 930 service, one of our members came up and said, Josh, what does it look like if we can pull that off? Like, we take over. Not from a political standpoint, not from a military standpoint, but literally all of a sudden there's just Christians everywhere. Loving each other. Loving the other, fighting for them, advocating for them. And from that platform, we proclaim loudly and boldly our Messiah is what drives us. Our Messiah is what makes us righteous. And our Messiah wants you to be in right relationship with him. Amen. And he will go to any length to have that relationship with you. And so we will go to any length to have that relationship with you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks for being a God of righteousness, of justice a God of reconciliation, a God of sacrifice. But Lord, we are honest that we're still playing by the world's rules. We still knock other people down or refuse to help them up. 
Lord, there is still wickedness inside of us, and so we need a God of forgiveness to again wrap us in your righteousness. Father, Lord, we come before you now confessing where we're not in right relationship with people or we're not in right relationship with you, that we're trusting in things that aren't of you. Lord, we seek your forgiveness, and Lord, we are bold to seek it because of your Son. Lord, as we enter into the sacred moment of the Lord's Supper, Lord, we pray that you meet us there, that we see you, we receive you, and we connect to you. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.